ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. I'm your host, Stephen G. Gaxiola, and you are listening to the Raider and the Saint podcast. folks once again i want to thank all my listeners from around the world that tune in every week to the raider the saint podcast i appreciate you guys man i couldn't have done done this without you guys' support man i see you guys tuning in from all around the world man and it really means a lot to me this is episode 161 today's date is june 11th the year is 2023 if you guys are looking to be a sponsor advertiser or you want to be a guest on the show you can get a hold of me at the raider and the saint at outlook.com that is the Raider and the Saint at Outlook.com. Uh, other than that, man, I'm going to get right to it today. Uh, my guest today <clears throat> is uh, Barry Eidlin. He's Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University. He is a comparative historical sociologist interested in the study of class, politics, social movements, and social change. He is the author of Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada, Cambridge University Press 2018. He has appeared in Washington Post, The Globe, and how's it? Mail, yep. La Presse, and Jacobin? Jacobin. Jacobin. Jeez, dude. There we go. <laughs> it's starting already, folks. Prior to embarking on his academic career, he has spent several years as a union organizer, mainly with the Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Once again, Barry Eidlin. Welcome to the show, man. I've been trying to get you on for a minute now, and I'm so happy you're here. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, great to be here, Stephen. Thanks yes. for having me. Yes, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, what do you want to know? I mean, I've been teaching um, at McGill since uh, 2015. Um, my main research is on working class power and politics um, with a focus on North America, the U.S. and Canada. Um, I've got a lifelong adult lifelong commitment to the labor movement. So I've mm. been involved in some way, shape or form for about 25 years now. Mm. Um, you know, both as an activist and organizer and as a scholar, um, sort of both trying to help shape the labor movement and trying to understand what it's been up to. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, a, a capsule summary of what I've been up to the past few years. So did you, you grew up in Canada? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up near Toronto, a town called Guelph, Ontario. Um, and uh, spent, you know, grew, grew up there, um, went to high school in Hamilton, which is like the Pittsburgh of Canada, it's like Steel City. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went uh, to the U.S. Uh, for, for my undergrad. Um, <coughs> went, um, and then, uh, you know, four days 
after graduating from college, I got, uh, I was uh, part of the first wave of this program called Union Summer, which the uh, AFL-CIO, the main U.S. Labor Federation sponsored in the 90s yeah. uh, and got uh, tossed into the middle of the uh, Detroit newspaper strike, uh, which was one of the major labor conflicts of the 1990s. And that experience really uh, shaped me and uh, sort of threw me into the labor movement, basically. Um, I went, um, went back home, worked in a concrete plant for a while, um, got, uh, then went through the AFL-CIO's organizing institute because I want to be a union organizer. Um, and then uh, got fired from my first job after that, realized that I wasn't really doing the kind of organizing that I wanted to be doing. Um, then after some, some, <laughs> some, <laughs> some, some ins and ups and downs, I ended up uh, finding the right fit with, with, with TDU, Teams for Democratic Union. Um, and I worked on staff there uh, for, for six years. Um, and then uh, before deciding to make that uh, wrong turn into academia. So okay. Well, let's go back a little bit. Yeah. You talked about you, you grew up in Canada, in Toronto, uh -huh. and you came here for your under, undergraduate to the United mm -hmm. States. What made you make that <coughs> jump from Yeah, it was, it, it, it was a very weird jump. I mean, my, my friend, because most people in Canada do not go go too far from home, right? Yeah. So, like, the whole, like, there is in the U.S. this sort of... Um, notion often of like going off to college right where you like mm -hmm. spread your wings and learn to fly and uh you know develop your own independence and in canada that doesn't really that's not a thing right mm -hmm. most 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 kids sort of go go to the school close by you know and mm -hmm. and part of that is just because in canada the the um what sociologists so, so like the the hierarchy of 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 universities isn't as steep Mm -hmm. in like the prestige hierarchies right mm -hmm. so it doesn't really matter as much if you get into like the top school versus like the you know middle rank school or whatever like that it doesn't it, it doesn't mean as much in terms of your job prospects or like your learning your education or anything like that mm -hmm. um but i guess for me i mean the important thing uh in my background that led me to the u.s is that both my parents were american and okay. they and they both did that like um, they, they both uh, were, were fortunate to have this private liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was just part of my growing up. My father was also a professor. Oh, nice. um, and in, that's why he came to Canada, right? Because mm -hmm. he, he, he did his PhD in, in, at the University of Toronto. And, um, and so growing up, this idea of a liberal arts education was, was sort of, you know, just part of part of part of growing up and um and that that also is not really much of a thing in canada um the idea of having the sort of like small campus of like a few thousand people and you sort of get this broad education you know in, in canada it's really it's much more like you know you, you declare your major you go to a fairly big school like you know um it's just a different approach right mm -hmm. um and uh, and so that's not something you can get much in canada and so i i decided that um, you know, with obviously with my parents' encouragement that, you know, going to the U.S. would be the, the thing to do. So I ended up at a place um, near Cleveland in Ohio called Oberlin College, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, you know, is, is known for uh, having a fairly uh, progressive reputation. Um, it uh, was one of, it was the first university, uh, first college to admit um, African-Americans, um, you know, 
with ed being educated with whites, um, the first to admit women, the first to um, you know uh, on a coeducational basis, mm. um, and uh, and and many of the first and the first uh, to admit black women as well. So there's a, and there's a sort of progressive reputation that has continued, um, and that sort of attracted me, um, and that, that and so I, I that, and that was also actually where I got my first. Um, involvement with the labor movement mm -hmm. because when I was a student at Oberlin, um, the, uh, the custodial staff was organizing with the United Auto Workers, the UAW, and I was uh, part of a student solidarity committee there that, um, that, that sort of, you know, got me, got me exposed to uh, sort of labor struggles. Um, and then that sort of broadened out and, you know, there was uh, some steel workers at the at the mill in, in in Warren Ohio which was a few miles away and we would go and like pick it with them and mm -hmm. stuff like that so I got exposed in in college to that that whole environment yeah because down there like Cleveland <coughs> Pittsburgh what are they what are they called back in the days that was the the rust belt yeah the rust belt yes and a lot of those most of them were all union unionized and it was mm -hmm. Uh, tragedy because you see a lot of movies nowadays it, 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 it always goes back to th that scenario where uh, now they're the dad the, the old mill in the background mm -hmm. is all uh, broken down and then the son's trying to make a comeback uh, trying to come up playing football whatever uh, so yeah it, the, a lot of the union uh, the base I think would say would you say it kind of started right there of the labor like, movement yeah well well labor movement to keep because what I'm trying to say is man my mind's going a million miles an hour is a lot of a lot of those union jobs got diminished mm-hmm and it, that's because I, I feel it's because a lot a lot of the corporate greed got got even more greedy and start shipping a lot of the stuff overseas a lot of the work well, there's there is some of that. I think that 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 narrative of sort of the jobs getting shipped overseas um, and the you know we you know manufacture the decline of manufacturing, um, I think gets a bit overhyped okay. in, in in the U.S. context. Because if you look at um, you know where economic activity is in the U.S. even today, right, manufacturing sector still accounts for about ten percent of what's called value added in GDP. So like when you sort of like like what what's actually sort of producing value in the U.S. economy, mm -hmm. still about ten percent, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about sort of like where people think the money's going, you know, like a growth sector like healthcare, mm -hmm. right? Like that's about seven percent mm -hmm. of of gross domestic product, right? And so 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 we're still making a lot of things in the U.S. We're just making them in different places, okay? Right? So the and and we're making them under different working conditions, mm -hmm. right? So, yes, you know, the steel mills in Pittsburgh are gone. Yes, the, a lot of the auto plants are shut down. Uh, but, you know, there's still, there, there are more auto workers in the United States today than there were in 1983, mm. right? Now, obviously, as a percentage of the workforce, it's less. Yeah. But the absolute number is the same. Um, it, it's actually greater, sorry. Um, but so so the the important thing to remember there is that is that it's not so much that manufacturing has disappeared it's just moved to okay. a different part of the country particularly the southwest and the US south so mm -hmm. there's a huge growth in manufacturing 
in in the South, particularly, and 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 parts of the, like the more rural Midwest um, areas, and it's largely non-union, right? Mm. And so that so so so, so that's that so it's be. more it's more that it's it's not that it's disappeared; it's deunionized, right? And so and and that has come with the sort of decline in living standards that you that you're that yeah. you're talking about. So right? that is basically describing the labor movement. Yeah, so there's so 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 the story is more a story of deunionization than the disappearance of jobs, right? Oh. And uh, and I think that's really important because a I think it it tells us that uh, it, it's a more accurate it's something that we can control, right? Like we can turn the labor movement around. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, we're not just tilting at windmills, right? We're not just trying to sort of like recapture some glory days that that are that are long gone and aren't coming back mm -hmm. right um there are a lot of these jobs that are still in the u.s and that we can still organize and then the question is how do you actually do that and that's a very tall order it's very tough uh, and there are a lot of very smart people who are thinking about that but it's it's something that you can do Right. It's mm -hmm. not you're not just you're not just at the mercy of these forces that are beyond our control, which is mm -hmm. kind of where that um, that narrative of we don't make things anymore and globalization is taking over the world kind of can often lead us to, which leads to just a place of despair and paralysis that isn't very useful when we're talking about, like, how do we actually improve the lives of 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 workers in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. How important is it? in the United States and, and Canada to have uh, have to be unionized in the mm -hmm. companies. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, I think that, you know, just the the, the what what some people call the union advantage um, is is significant. You know, it can be upwards of 20 to 30 percent uh, uh, higher wages for the s similar types of work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, not to mention the benefit packages and the job security and, mm. and just not only that, but I think that the part that often gets down or not talked about enough is what's often just lumped together as these thing called work rules, right? Which is mm. a lot of the, just the nitty gritty of the contract language. So you, you're a UPS driver, so you know yes. about that and, 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 and the, those types of rules, um, you know, can seem kind of arcane if you're just on, on the outside, right? But they really make a huge difference in terms of workers' day-to-day -day lives, in terms of their ability to just have some dignity and respect on the job, in mm. terms of you know, what their supervisors can get away with, and in terms of you know, regulating the pace of work and, and the, the, the hours of work, and what types of jobs you can and can't do, and, and, and all that stuff you know, like I said, can seem pretty arcane if you don't know what the job is. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing the job, it can really be like night and day. Mm -hmm. And and that's the kind of stuff that is really important to keep in mind. But then at a broader level, just getting back to this, this, uh, the, the bigger picture, you know, um, you know, the, 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 the massive growth in, in wage and in income inequality that we've seen in the United States over the past several decades, um, a, a large chunk of it, depending on the studies you look at, is fairly directly a result of the decline in unionization, mm -hmm. right? So at the peak in the 1950s and 60s, roughly a third of 
U.S. workers were unionized, and now we're down to about 10%, right? So there's been, you know, it's been cut. Wait, say the number again? So so roughly about a third, um, so 30, 34% of the workforce in like 1950, between the, the mid-50s and mid-60s okay. was was unionized. And now we're down to about 10%. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and in the private sector, um, you know, we're down to like 5 6%, right? So, so when you have, and that's really important because when you have a third of the workforce versus 10%, that has some real important effects in terms of your ability to shape wages and working conditions in the labor market more broadly, mm-hmm. right? Because if because if you're if you have that percentage, you know you set the standard, right? Mm-hmm. You set the so 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 when when the United Auto Workers in the 1950s was negotiating higher wages, benefits, working conditions for the auto plants, it wasn't just affecting the auto plants. Mm-hmm. All the other employers knew that they had to match what, what the UAW was negotiating or some come somewhere in the ballpark or else they weren't going to have anybody show up for work for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So they were really setting the pace in a way. Whereas now with the decline in unionization, um, you have companies like Amazon and Walmart that mm-hmm. are setting the standard. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 unionized sectors are. um often just sort of these isolated islands that are sort of, uh, they, they don't have the same sort of larger knock-on effects. And that's, a, that, that's, what hap- that, that's, that's concretely what, what it means, the difference between having one-third versus one-tenth of the workforce unionized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also, being unionized, it also, it, it holds, the co- it, it just, I, I look at a corporate greed, mm-hmm. right? Look how much Jeff Bezos has has made, right? Yeah. And I'm all for some capitalism, right? To a certain extent, right? The guy mm-hmm. came up with the idea. He hustled. He worked his butt off. And I think there's a picture of him. Was it him in the garage? Or maybe that was Zuckerberg. There's someone in a garage. <laughs> yeah, there's someone in a garage. Some of the things are all posted up on the wall. But kudos to him. But at, at some point, you got to give it back to the workers who who you came up with the idea. Kudos to that, dude. But it, it's time you you take care of the workers. He took the same the same blueprint that FedEx is doing, mm-hmm. and they subcontract they subcontract out. Mm-hmm. That way, they they have no responsibility whatsoever with the drivers. If they get injured, it's the contractor's problem. The car breaks down, it's the contractor's problem. The contractor plays these guys peanuts. I've seen them mm-hmm. on road. How much you're making? I'm only making. I remember back in the days, ten years ago, they were making twelve dollars an hour, doing yeah. 200, 200 deliveries. And I looked at them. I go, Do you got benefits? No, nothing. Just just hourly wage. And I just says, Wow, dude. Yeah. Like, why don't you guys? If everyone just organized and, and got together they can make a difference uh, now fedex is not because he had fedex ground which they had their the drivers were subcontractors right and then fedex express which that was their company yeah. so it was basically like two companies same same name and the fedex express they they had their employees in the hub and they had benefits the drivers had benefits but now what i heard recently is now fedex express is just going to combine with uh, FedEx Ground, and they're all going to be 
uh, subcontracted out. Yeah. So a lot of people already know that it got in their walking papers that were FedEx Express drivers for over 20 years. Yeah. No, I think you need to think about it this way that we we often sort of lionize these CEOs for coming up with these brilliant ideas, right? And mm -hmm. and in some cases, you know, like the 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 they come up with innovations that legitimately do sort of constitute improvements in sort of how business gets done and getting packages from point A to point B or getting people from point A to point B or like figuring out a, a, a more efficient way of, of, of making stuff. And, you know, that kind of technological progress, that, that, that is a legitimate social good, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of these companies, whether we're talking about Amazon or Walmart or, or, or the gig economy, Uber, you know, DoorDash, stuff like that, mm -hmm. a good chunk of what's what, what is called innovation is essentially figuring out new ways to evade the law. Right. Whether <laughs> whether it's whether it's whether it's sort of these, you know, misclassifying workers as independent contractors, figuring out ways to skirt, you know, um, basic labor protections or zoning laws or, you know, when it comes to something like Airbnb mm -hmm. um, or, you know, and 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 that kind of, you know, organized, uh, you know, creative law breaking, essentially. Um, is not doing is not contributing creative to social to social progress in any way, mm -hmm. right? That's not that's not the kind of creativity that we want to encourage in society, right? Yeah. And so I think that uh, that we need to sort of keep a, 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 a keep those things separate in our minds, right? That like yes, there are these sort of innovations, right? So mm -hmm. like. In, in, in a certain way, you know, we can even look at something like the assembly line, right? Like that genuinely sort of created, you know, social progress in terms of, you know, increasing efficiency. It also had these huge effects in terms of turning humans into machines. And so you had, you had, you know, the, so you had the labor movement sort of push back and sort of regulate this invention, right? So it's a good thing that cars aren't, being made by hand, you know, in a workshop, you know, from scratch every, every, in every way. Uh, you know, but, but it's also good that, that there are unions to sort of regulate how these assembly lines are operated. And then when, when unions decline, that ability to regulate these technologies gets diminished. And, and so if you move that into the 21st century, Right. We're now, you know, the, the 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 equivalent sort of social innovation is, you know, the gig economy or, um, you know, new kinds of automation and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And where where um, or AI or something like that, where there are legitimate social advances in terms of being able to do things easier and more effectively and and get, um, you know, that 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 we can't just dismiss and say like oh this is just like this technology is just bad right like no like there are legitimate things like it it's like it's it's you know to go back to like the uber example right um like uber isn't the only company that has uh you know figured out like figure figured out um you can put the bike closer to you sorry yeah. dude i don't want to make sure okay. i got you yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> isn't the only company that you know, has figured out technology that can sort of like allow people to sort of call up a ride on their on their phone, mm -hmm. and, you know, but like 
that's an advance over just having to like hang out on a street corner and like raise your hand and mm -hmm. wait for some Whistle, yeah. cab to 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 come by. Like that, that there is some legitimate progress there. But does that mean that um, you know the drivers of the future all have to just accept that they're gonna be like you know struggling to get by and like making you know below minimum wage and have no job security you know so those are two separate questions yeah right? well they're not even doing that i mean now like they they're trying they're trying to unionize and organize and yeah they deserve it right exactly they do right. but ai is stepping in they got they got driverless cars now yeah or, you know and and i delivered to to a place that were testing them out and they're they were really close to ship shipping them out and getting them going so yeah we're and it's also a struggle down there at the docks too uh, with the with the driverless uh the big rigs you know yeah. it's, it's just going to be all automated now and yeah so losing jobs like that with from ai is a big concern to a lot of people yeah and so i but i guess again the the question is right so th there's yeah. always this kind of you know what what this this austrian economist uh Sh joseph schumpeter called creative destruction right where where the where capitalism sort of you know, destroys certain jobs, certain industries, and then other ones come up, and that's how you that that's sort of this engine of, yeah. of progress, right? Um, and and sometimes that idea gets invoked to just sort of throw your hands up and say like, oh, okay, no big deal. You know, millions of people are going to be thrown out of work, but that's just capitalism working its magic, and you know, these people are just the collateral damage, right? Whereas I think that we need to look at it in the sense of, yes, there's going to be technological change. Yes, jobs are going to change. Yes, industries are going to change. But that's not some inevitable process that's just sort of happening outside of human control. There are actual policy decisions involved, actual decisions we can make to make sure that as jobs change, as industries change, as the economy changes, we can still have an economy where workers are making a decent living, have decent job security, are able to you know, spend time with their families, are able to show up at work and have a modicum of decent, decent respectful treatment, right? These are sort of basic things that we need to keep in mind as the economy changes, right? And mm -hmm. not just sort of throw, throw our hands up and say, like, well, we can't do that because that's just technology sort of you know, doing its thing. Well, I know, for yeah. example, uh, Albertsons, a lot of the distribution centers are going fully automated. They're saying uh, it's getting close to, they're saying September. I've seen pictures mm -hmm. of the warehouse, mm -hmm. and they're saying, rumor has it that they're going to be letting go 60% of the workforce mm -hmm. because the machines are going to be doing everything for them. Yeah. No, and, and so I think that, first of all, um, you know, that sh <laughs> Especially in a unionized in a yeah. unionized context, you know that can be a subject of negotiation in contracts, yeah. right? And so, so again, you know, the the decision is ultimate. I mean, management can decide to do things differently, yeah. you know, but it has to be pushed to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, as you are well aware, mm -hmm. and as the listeners of the show are probably well aware, you know, management will take whatever it can get. Right. Yeah. Management is focused on the bottom line. And the only way that it's not going to focus on the bottom line and focus on something other than the bottom line, like the workers that uh, work for the company, is if there's some other force that pushes them to force them to pay attention. And that's what unions do. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that they force management to pay attention to a different set of priorities. 
And whether that's technological change, whether that's speed up at work, whether that's, you know, for UPS drivers, something like air conditioning in the package cars, um, you know, or, or uh, drivers, driver facing cameras, um, all those issues are issues that, you know, men will try to get away with unless there's some force that's pushing them to do something else. And so I think we need to remember, again, going back to the point I was trying to raise, that these are, these are decisions that people make. They're not just these inevitable forces mm. that are just happening outside of human control. And I think mm. that when we look at technological change through that lens, it really changes our sense of what type of future is possible. And we can sort of get away from this kind of, um, you know, doomsday scenario of just like the movie Wally. Yeah. Robot takeout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where there's just this dystopian future that, you know, we're inevitably headed towards, right? There's a, a, a different future that we can actually create through, you know, humans actually working together. And I think that's for me, one of the big reasons why I remain committed to the labor movement, because that is mm. really one of the forces that can serve that role of helping to shape a different future than what the Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos of the world would like to have in store for us. What do you think about, well, what can you say to the people that, that are tuning in that aren't union members mm -hmm. and they, they, maybe they want to be union, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. but from what they're told, they, some people say it's a pyramid scheme. It's just a, another way to dig in your pockets mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. How, yeah. how can you t how can you tell those people that it's not about that? Like, how can you can you yeah, I try mean, to convince them here? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can talk to workers all day about the benefits, but ultimately what workers will fight for is a future that they think is realistic and achievable. Mm -hmm. So it's only in a context where um, you know, so it's not a, it's not it's not it's not an argument you can win rhetorically just by yeah. having like the smarter argument or the better set of facts. Yeah. It's the argument that you win by setting an example. So the best example right now is the UPS contract, okay. right? So I think, you know, July 31st, the contract expires. Um, and you know, Sean O'Brien has the president of the teamsters has committed to, you know, if we don't have a contract on July 31st, we hit the pavement August 1st. If the teamsters are able to win, an excellent contract, um, potentially through going on strike, um, and really showing what difference a union makes. Mm -hmm. That is going to do incomparably more than mm -hmm. any kind of conversation, conversation. you can yeah. have, you know, yeah. but more generally, you know, and so I think, but then there's these feedback effects, right? Cause I think that, 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 so, so, so that is an example where let's say, you know, let's say there's a strike on August 1st and then and then and then management is forced to sort of cave in and and you, and you win a strike. So that, you know, the UPS contract covers 350,000 workers in every zip code in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So everybody's going to hear about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're going to say, wow, like they got this. Why can't I? Right. Mm -hmm. And and that has a demonstration effect. And then, you know, as you get more people, you know, who are in a union. Right. Um, that has a demonstration effect, right? So maybe it isn't that, that so like, cause, you know, people won't remember the UPS strike. You know, a lot of people won't, you know, it'll be out of the public mind 
or the UPS contract, you know, in a year or two years or something like that. I mean, mm -hmm. for not for everybody, obviously, but mm -hmm. for, for a good, it won't be in the public eye the way it will be, you know, in a few months for sure. But as unionization increases, then it's more common that, you know, someone knows somebody who's in the union, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh yeah, my father-in-law is in the union, my cousin's in the union, you know, my, my friend from high school is in the union. Mm -hmm. um, and it just becomes a more normal thing and people understand like, oh yeah, like if you're in a union, you know, then, then you can, um, you just, you get better pay, you get better benefits, you get better treatment at work, all those kind of things where people sort of know from example because they know somebody, right? Whereas now, you know, when you're at 6% unionization in the private sector, right, which is a, the, the vast majority of, of the labor force, right? Like you can, can, can you explain for the audience private sector yeah, and the yeah, public yeah. sector? So, so public sector is if you work for some sort of government, basically. So whether it's state, local, Private. Fed, federal, that's public oh, sector. public sector, okay. That's public sector. Yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. Right, okay. so if, you, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a federal worker, if you're a state worker, if you're a, a county or municipal worker, you're in what's called the public sector. Oh, so that's, okay, you know, okay. that's like your firefighters, that's your teachers, that's, uh, you know, your, your sanitation workers who, who work for the cities, not not for like Republic or waste management or something like that. Um, that or, or you know your your federal agency workers, you know people who process your unemployment. And I, I would assume most uh, public public sectors are unionized. Well, it's roughly about forty percent. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah. So it's not it's not as high as you might think, but uh, it, it it varies a lot from sector to sector, uh, uh, within the within the public sector, right? Because you know you have to remember, like, so you have like, like in in California where we are. Um, you know, the public sector, like the state workers are almost entirely unionized mm -hmm. versus in Texas where public sector workers are literally forbidden by law to organize. Really? Right? In Texas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Texas, North Carolina, a couple other states, um, they're actually forbidden by law to, 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 to organize. And so when you sort of like mash those two together, then, you know, <laughs> then when you average everything out, you know, it gets, it, 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 it drives the average down anyway. Yeah. But the, so, so whereas private sector is everything where you're working for a private, you know, private company. So your UPS drivers, UPS your, you know, your warehouse workers, your flight attendants, your, um, you know, all the other stuff. So that, and that, that, that's a, that's a, a large chunk of the economy. And that, like I said earlier, we're talking about mm -hmm. at best 6% unionization, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're living in a world where, you know, one in 20 workers in, 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 in the private sector are unionized, a large chunk of the workforce doesn't know people who are in unions. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's just like this thing that's out there that like they may or may not have heard of, but it's not really, doesn't seem like a realistic option, mm -hmm. right? In terms of like, cause like you think about the average worker showing up at work, you go up, if you talk to anybody about the, the work they do, they can talk your ear off about all the problems at work, right? Mm -hmm. About, whether it's long hours or, or like arbitrary scheduling or management harassment or customers or, you know, what, what, whatever. I mean, every job has, has things to complain about. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when people, when your average workers sitting there thinking about like, you know, what could I do to make things better? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I've got these problems at work. 
sometimes they might sit and think about like, okay, well, how can I make this better? How could I like, you know, raise my pay or like improve mm -hmm. my scheduling or reduce harassment? You know, if they think that far, you know, um, what are your, what, what's your set of options? Yes. Right. Um, number one that comes to most people's minds, I could quit and find something else. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, they could, you know, go talk to their boss. Maybe <laughs> you see how that works. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's the point being that there's, there's a bunch of individual level solutions, right? Mm -hmm. So what are things that I could do? The idea that there's a collective solution, right? That like, what if me and my coworkers actually like got together and, you know, organized, right? Yeah. Um, so like you and I, where we know about unions and how they work mm -hmm. and, and, and what benefits they do. Um, that seems to make sense, right? Cause we mm -hmm. know the history, we know like the, 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 the we, we see what the contract says, you know, these are things that like, yeah, like this is something that you could do. But, um, for most workers, especially in a world where this is just not part of their reality, that just doesn't come to mind. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so you need to, through things like having these high profile strikes, through having these high profile organizing campaigns, these conversations, set, set, these set, podcasts. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, like this all sort of creates more of an ecosystem, if you mm -hmm. will, where the idea of you can actually change things by unionizing makes more sense to people, right? It's mm -hmm. not all, it becomes sort of part of their awareness that, like, oh, this is an option. But then also that this is something that they could actually do. And if they did it, they could actually win something. And right? that's where I'm going to lead into your book. You, you, mm -hmm. I, I know you, how many books have you written? So far, just one. I'm working on a oh, few Oh, okay, others. okay, okay. Yeah. I want to make sure. I mean, I've edited one. Anyway. But you have one <laughs> yeah. called Labor and, and the Class, class idea. Ideas. And the Class Idea. In the, the Class Idea. My yeah. bad. I wrote that wrong. Uh, labor and a Class Idea. And is that what you're referring to in, with your book that you've yeah. read in? Yeah. So the, what is it about? Yeah. So the book is about uh, why unions are weaker in the U.S. than they are in Canada. Yeah, we've been talking about. But, yeah. But, but haven't always been that way, right? Because yes. like we've been talking about, you mm -hmm. know, you had about thirty, a third of the workforce unionized in the 1950s in the U.S. Now we're down to about one tenth. Um, and for much of the 20th century, unionization rates in Canada basically followed whatever was going on in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the mid 60s. And there's a branching off point. And now in 2023, unionization rates in Canada are about three times higher than they are in the U.S. So they're about 10% in the U.S. And they're just shy of 30% in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so the book is about why that is. And people generally talk about um, what people point to often is things like, well, Canada has better labor laws or Canadians have more socialist values, more collectively oriented values. So mm -hmm. they, so, so they're more likely to, to, to join unions or Canada has a labor party and the U S doesn't. Right. And, um, there are grains of truth to this, but they, these explanations fall short in a lot of ways. Right. So if we look at labor law, for example, and that's one that you, people in the U S people who follow unions in the U.S. often point to is like, oh, we, we need labor laws like in Canada. So that's why we need the PRO Act, right? So the, for, for listeners who aren't aware, there's been an effort 
in recent years to pass something called the Protector Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, which would change labor law in the U.S. to make it easier to organize, mm-hmm. right? Because one of the big reasons, uh, it, it is true that, you know, if, if you're in 2023 and you're trying to organize a union in the U.S., um, it's really hard. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard. Before before I let you go, I, I let not let you go, but how about <laughs> I get you go? I understand because I've been out there. Medieval times, I've I've shout out to all the uh, workers out there. They're on strike. They've mm-hmm. been on strike more than a hundred days now. Yeah. I went out there. I I've, I've had uh, a guest on. Uh, I don't want to mess up his name. So I think it's Dave, David David Bowman. Mm-hmm. No, I think yeah. Jake, no, my bad. Jake Bowman. Sorry, I apologize, guys. I get a lot of guests on the show, but he he came on. But they're up the street and they're they're uh, they're on strike and they're yep. trying to organize. And the company's shutting them down and they're they're flying in people to ride the horses and yeah. throw their swords around. And I just to, to me personally, I go, man, dude, it's gonna be a tough battle because yeah. they're not working. And not even just that, I was in Palmdale recently for Amazon. They're at eighty. They had 84 drivers that uh, that were being subcontracted. Obviously, we know how that works. And the owner of of the subcontracting company knew about unions, so he was the one that initiated that they we should all be unionized. And so uh, it's it's a long battle. They're down to 20 drivers now. Yeah. And so it, it's 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 a battle. So when you say that, yeah. like it's it's a battle. I had to, I had yeah. to tell you that I understand. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and so there's all these barriers to workers actually exercising their right to organize and join a union, which is a federal right. And we need to remember that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for starters. But to exercise that right, you need to. For a lot of people, they're putting their jobs and their livelihoods on the line yes, just, just to exercise this federal right. Right. And and the the laws are such in the U.S. that it's literally economically rational for employers to break the law. It is economically irrational for them to actually obey the law because they can do all this stuff to sort of threaten, fire, intimidate uh, workers to prevent them to organize, basically wage these scorched earth campaigns. Um, something I, I detail in, in, in the book, just yeah. the, the types of things that they do under these um, nice sounding terms like employer free speech, right? Like, oh, everybody's for free speech. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> when employer free speech, what trans- what it translates into is is that employers have the right to sort of, you know, engage in these captive audience meetings where they all but lock workers in a room and lecture them about why unions are bad pull them into one-on-one meetings union uh, busters yeah all the you know calling professional union busters um who's paying for the union <laughs> busters yeah, yeah it's 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 the you know it's the, it's the well it's the customers it's you know coming out of the you know the, the, they're 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 paying for all this because they at bottom don't want to give up control right is that what it comes down That's to or is it money to, right well no what 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 i'm what i'm saying is actually that there is uh, there is a motivation beyond money and that is control. Mm. Right. And so I think, so, so that's why these companies will spend, you know, astronomical sums of money on union busters Mm -hmm. because, and, and yes, you know, you could run the numbers in some way that like over the long term it might seem economically rational to like 
you know, where, where, where they, because of the amount that they would have to pay and increased wages and benefits if they signed a union contract, it's quite possible that, that over the long term, the money they're putting up front for the union busters is going to pay off. But it's not a slam dunk case, I guess. Mm -hmm. so let's put it that way. And it's really about management not wanting to give up control. Like that, that, that sort of sovereign control of the workforce is really important to management. And we need to keep that in mind. And so the, all the incentives in U.S. labor law are oriented towards making it easier for employers to break the law. Because the worst that can happen nowadays is that they can be forced to you know, post a notice and if they fire someone, they might be able, they might be required to pay them back pay minus whatever that worker earned on the side while they were laid off or while they were fired, right? So, so they don't even have to pay like punitive damages or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so it really, and meanwhile, you know, they're, they've been out of, out, of, out of the workplace for a year, two years, three years, what have you. And the organizing drive's been squashed and, and, and management's been able to sort of continue business as usual. So, so it really pays in that case for management to break the law, right? Um, whereas in Canada, the situation is reversed, right? In the mm -hmm. sense that in Canada, labor law is such that, you know, if a, in, in a lot of provinces, like my, my university is in Quebec, um, so I, 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 I live part of the year in Quebec, and if... Um, how many Teamsters are in Canada? Real there quick. are roughly 150,000, about 10% of the membership. Oh, of the okay. Team. Yeah, so it's, it's a sizable presence, in, and a lot of it's in Quebec. Um, and so, um, Sorry. so in Quebec <laughs> if it, it, and, and, and several other provinces, you know, if a majority of workers in a workplace want to join a union, they just sign cards, they present them to the labor board, and if the labor board recognizes that these are all valid signatures and whatever, then they recognize the union, and they and the employer is required to uh, start bargaining. Um, and if but they, easier, yeah. And if they don't have uh, a contract after a year, then um, then the contract can get sent to mandatory binding arbitration, where and given that in that case the employer would have been dragging their feet for a year, oftentimes, to the when that gets used, it's often used to punish the employer, mm. right? Where, where they, because they impose a contract that's more along the lines of what the union was demanding because, um, because the, 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 the employer has been dragging their feet for so long. Mm. The reality is that, that that arbitration virtually never gets used because, but, but, but it serves as an incentive so bargain. they got a year to bargain. Yeah, basically. But over Whereas, here, we don't have that. No. In, in the U.S., it's actually the opposite. The incentive is flipped, right? In the U.S., the incentive is, which we're seeing now with the Starbucks organizing, yes. right? Where in the event that workers form a union in a workplace, there is still that federal mandated bargaining. So, so employers are required to bargain, but they're not required to um to reach agreement. Mm -hmm. They're not uh, obliged to reach a contract. And in fact, after a year, if an employer can convince enough of the workers to sign a decertification petition, they, they, are, they are able to 
decertify the union after the year has passed. So the incentive in the U.S. is for employers to basically run out the clock mm -hmm. and then file a decert petition and, and get rid of the union that way versus in Canada where the incentive is like, well, the, the, at the end of that year, oh, I'm going to get a contract imposed on What a bunch of scumbags. Right? So all of these things to say, so I guess to get back to the original point yeah, about my good. book. Yeah, follow uh, <laughs> is that So if we look at labor law today, mm. right, yes, Canadian labor law is objectively better at protecting workers' rights to organize a union and bargain a contract mm -hmm. than in the U.S. Yes. But if we're trying to say that Organi that changing labor law is going to actually change unionization rates and that it's actually a cause of union decline. Mm. That gets more tricky because a lot of these laws in Canada that make it easier to organize were only implemented a decade or more after unionization started diverging in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the reforms in labor law followed the upsurge in worker activity in Canada that led to them sort of branching off in a different direction, right? Mm -hmm. So basically what happened in Canada is that you had this upsurge of worker organizing in the 60s and into the 70s, which actually also happened in the U.S., but with different effects, right? And in response to that upsurge, governments responded with labor law reform, right? Mm -hmm. So it's actually reversed, where it's not that um, labor law reform led to increased unionization. It's that increased unionization led to labor law reform. Mm -hmm. And that's oftentimes, it was often more conservative governments that implemented these labor law reforms because they weren't pro-union by any stretch, right? Mm -hmm. They were conservatives, right? They don't believe in unions necessarily, but they do believe in a functional labor relations machinery that keeps a lid on industrial conflict and sort of keeps the keeps the packages moving and keeps the widgets keeps coming the off the assembly yeah, yeah. yeah you know keeps the and so 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 they 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 didn't necessarily have an interest in sort of gumming up the works to teach workers a lesson or something like that they just wanted things to keep moving and they realized like okay well if we want to keep things moving we just need to sort of you know you know, keep this labor relations machinery in, in, in place, right? Mm. So it's not that Canada, and so that gets to the values question, right? That mm -hmm. like Canada isn't necessarily this, you know, place where there's like a bunch of like social Democrats running around or something like that, you know, where, mm -hmm. where, where people are just like, you know, have this more socialist ideology or something like that. You guys um, got universal health care though, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, we have universal health care. And, and that's another thing that people point to is like, oh yeah, yeah. Canada has like universal health care, which, which, also happened around the same time that these unionization rates started diverging, mm -hmm. interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really the, and it, whether we're talking about healthcare and sort of broader sort of welfare state policy, or we're talking about unionization, 
it's really more a function of the outcomes of political battles in Canada and how they played out versus in the U.S. rather mm -hmm. than some sort of ideological or value. Yeah, because people, when difference. they hear socialism, they think communism right off the bat. Yeah, but it's it's not so much that, but it's it's not that like Canadians walk around with these more collective beliefs. It's just that that there there's a political system that is shaped by you know that, that these policy outcomes are the result of social struggles you right? guys vote you guys percentages of voting is is it more than it would be in the u.s when it comes to uh, uh yeah some, somewhat yeah but it's not like can canadians have like or some are like super politically engaged compared to the u.s or something like that they just vote but there's 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 different political options you know so like in canada there is a, a labor party that that people vote for and that serves as sort of a left wing in the in the parliament that sort of like pushes for more socially oriented policies um, played a key role in in winning national health care in Canada. Um, you know that that and basically you have a system where you have a greater opportunity for workers to have a voice in the political system. and it gets and and that that's really and there, there's there's a long story of of how that how that comes to be. But basically, um, I guess that's the third part is, you know, why does Canada get a labor party and the u s. doesn't? And Ultimately, in the book, and this is sort of what I trace out, is that this is the result of different responses to the worker upsurge of the 1930s and 40s. So mm -hmm. this is here, we're going all the way back to the Great Depression, mm -hmm. right? And the ironic thing is that the response to worker upsurge in Canada in the 1930s was actually more anti-union than in the U.S., it was yeah. more repressive. So the prime minister of Canada, when he was facing the sort of worker upsurge of the 1930s, which is was similar along the lines of what we saw in the U.S. too, yeah. his response was to vow to crush it under what he called the iron heel of ruthlessness. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so he went around, you know, ordered the, you know, the, the Mounties, right? Mm -hmm. Americans sometimes know the Mounties, those guys in those funny hats and the red outfits. Um, to go around and basically bust up union halls, deport foreign organizers, ship single um, you know male workers off to work camps, mm -hmm. um, you know uh, all sorts of very repressive things in response to the worker upsurge. Whereas, of course, in the U.S., the response was the New Deal, was the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act. So the the the, the what what Franklin Roosevelt um, you know put together. And basically what I argue in the book is that, you know, you know, the Wagner Act provided real benefits. I mean, it, it came with some some, um, you know, some downsides, but overall it was a very positive effect in terms of like proclaiming the federal right to organize, giving a mechanism for workers to actually join unions. Um, but what happened was that the, 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 the New Deal policies of the Roosevelt government basically provided enough sort of material incentive to get workers to see like, oh, the Demo we could get something from the Democratic Party, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so maybe we should just, you know, go with the Democrats and abandon our efforts to sort of try to form something else, like a, a left a labor third party kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and m meanwhile, within labor, as people who know, might know their labor history, right? So today the labor federation is called the AFL-CIO, 
right? American yeah. Federation of Labor hyphen Congress of Industrial Organizations. Those used to be two separate organizations. And in the 1930s, the CIO actually split off from the AFL over this question of industrial unionism, right? So the AFL was a craft union. So you think building trades, right? Mm -hmm. so, they, so, so it was organizing people by occupation. So we're electricians, we're bricklayers, we're um, skilled trades, whatever. And they had no interest in organizing, you know, the standard, you know, the, the vast majority of the working class that were, you know, regular hourly workers, right? Just mm. the, the warehouse workers, the truck drivers, the, you know, that the, they just, they, they weren't interested. Um, and, um, and so the CIO was the organization that was like, we need to organize these shops wall to wall. We're not gonna, we're not gonna get anywhere by just sort of like picking off the skilled trades people and just, um, and just going, uh, um, and, and, and just trying to like make our way with those skilled tradespeople. We need to organize everybody in the factory. And that was the United Auto Workers, the steel workers. Um, At its peak in the United States, how many percentage of, of, the, of the people were unionized? So it was, like I said, it was close to a third. It was over a third. Oh, a third, about yeah, okay. Th about 34%, right? So that's by the time, by the 19, mid-50s you get right? to that, right? And so basically... So the, so the CIO broke off from the AFL. And so in the 1930s and 40s, there were these, there was basically a civil war within the labor movement in the mm. United States. And one of the casualties of that was these local labor councils. Um, if anybody is familiar with how labor unions work in, in, in the U.S. and in, in, in Canada, too, a lot of the political action happens through these local labor councils, right? In terms of like when candidates want endorsements or, um, you know, if, if you want to sort of turn out the vote for whatever initiative or candidate, it's the local labor councils where a lot of that stuff happens. And in a lot of local areas in the 1930s, there were labor organizations that were getting behind this idea of like we need a we need a labor party right it's been it had been sort of a recurring theme mm -hmm. since going back to the 19th century but there was this idea that like, yeah we really we, we you know the democrats and republicans are not um not doing it for us you know we we, we really need a, a different option and um but then like i said with roosevelt sort of making that turn to with the new deal that sort of like s s showed to some people like maybe mm. the maybe the democrats are, are actually a, a, a halfway decent option we could get something it's not everything we want but it could be enough and then meanwhile that what i was talking about that civil war within labor basically one of the casualties was these local labor councils because the afl would basically say like well any candidate that the cio endorses we're not we're, we're going to pull your funding mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. and so it cut the cut the legs out from under these local local labor council um, initiatives. And so the combination basically meant that 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 labor sort of was left with the Democrats as the only game in town. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, what happened in Canada with this iron heel of ruthlessness stuff going on um, was the sort of the, the mainstream political parties just weren't an option mm -hmm. in the way that that, mm -hmm. that that they were in, in the U.S., and so if if workers were going to have any kind of political voice or win any kind of reform, they knew 
that they had to create something different. And so that created an opening for this other party called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation to, um, to take root. And, and it was the breakthrough of the, of the CCF in the 1940s that really got the federal liberal government, which was the ruling party, um, so it's so today in Canada the prime minister is this guy Justin Trudeau and he's in the Liberal Party that that that's the name of his party and this going back yeah that the Liberal Party is 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 was one of the was the ruling party at the time and it was the electoral breakthrough of the CCF in Ontario combined with a huge upsurge of labor strikes that was actually threatening the Canadian government's ability to prosecute World War Two that convince the Canadian federal government to cave and grant a version of the Wagner Act, mm -hmm. the National Labor Relations Act, right? So that was the first instance of this sort of more left party sort of like playing this role of sort of winning better policies combined with worker upsurge. And a similar dynamic has, has, has un, you know, obviously it's more complicated and it varies by province, but, the, but, but that kind of dynamic has has unfolded in Canada more than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, over time, and that's ultimately, um, you know, basically that that there's a, a a better dynamic between sort of worker protest and government response in Canada that was set in that 1930s period, whereas in the U.S., um, to the extent that that stuff kind of bubbles up, it either gets um, it gets mis mistranslated if you will like if you, when when worker protests gets translated into the political realm it becomes either sort of like um a question of payoffs to this democratic party special interest so labor mm. gets painted as this like narrow special interest group um rather than an organ what what is the labor movement so the movement of the vast majority of the american people mm -hmm. right most americans are workers mm -hmm. Um, and the labor movement sort of is, is fighting for the interests of most workers, basically. Well, check this out. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break. Yeah, on the audio part, we're gonna come back. But as far as going live on IG, if you guys want to listen to the last 30, 45 minutes of the next conversation, you can tune in to uh, SoundCloud, uh, also on Spotify, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and I just got picked up by Bullhorn. Shout out to Bullhorn. Thank you so much for picking me up on the podcast. But other than that, we're going to cut the live feed. We're going to take a quick break. But on the audio side, we'll be right back in a quick second. All right, folks? Okay. Good. All right, folks. We are back from a quick break. I'm here with Barry Eidelin. He is the writer of the book Labor and Class Ideas. He's also associate professor at McGill University. In sociology. In sociology. Do you, uh, real quick, do you do, do you do it online? Or, Teaching? Mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, during the pandemic, we went online, but but uh, McGill University, most instruction is, is done in person. Okay. Where's McGill University located? It's in at? Montreal, in Quebec. But you're here in L.A. Yes, this is one of the occupational hazards of academic life. So is, you got to fly? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm currently on sabbatical, so okay. I don't, I'm not teaching. I'm focusing on my research. Okay. Uh, so I, I've been, I've been here, uh, full time. Uh, but during the academic year, if I'm teaching, I have to be in Montreal. Yeah. And okay. then I come back and forth and, you know, if during, during the times when I'm not 
in the classroom, I can, I can be back here with my family. Okay, yeah. that's cool, man. That's that's yeah. nice. It's not ideal, but yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> but but it's uh, but it's part of part of uh, the, the part of part of what I do, and part of you know the realities of today's academic job market is that is that you don't have a lot of um, a lot of control over where you end up getting a job. Yes. So, so but I mean, I have to say that <laughs> you know I'm I'm extremely fortunate to be at a place like McGill, which what? is a really phenomenal. So what kind of research are you doing right now? So I've got um, several different book projects that I'm working on. Okay. Um, so number one is a book on called uh, Class in America, and that's basically about the question of why do these ideologies of classlessness, uh, that the U.S. is sort of this classless society, persist in, in such a class-divided society, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the idea that, uh, you know, it's sort of, baked into this idea of the American dream that, you know, the U.S. is the land of opportunity where you can rise and fall on your merits based on, you know, if you want, if you want to put in the hard work and, and work your way up, you know, everybody can, can make it basically. Yeah. And, and the uh, reality is that, uh, that that's often not the case, that mm -hmm. a lot of people who work hard um, can't make it. And uh, that that uh, that that if you if your parents are poor, there's a good chance you're going to still be poor. And if mm -hmm. your parents are rich, there's a good chance you're still going to you're going to be rich. And that that actually is more the case in the U.S. than in some countries in Europe, for example, where people think of, you know, that that that, uh, you know, Europe is more of a place that's more class divided. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so so the data show that that you know that 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 there are these very stark class divides in the US but there's still this persistence of this idea that that there's the US of a land, as a land of opportunity um, where you can make it on your merits if you want to work hard and and so the book is about sort of trying to unpack that and explain why that's the case then there's a second book <coughs> called uh, the turn to, turning to the working class and that's uh, more of an oral history project that I'm working on with with a, a guy named Micah Utrecht, who is the editor of Jacobin magazine, um, and a former student of mine actually at McGill. Um, and he and I are working on this project that is basically a study of this generation of new left student activists. So people who were, you know, leading the anti-war movement, involved in the civil rights movement, involved in the feminist movement of the 1960s. And um, in the 1970s, made this turn to industry basically where they went and got jobs in factories to organize um you know so to uh to sort of be part of a of a of a of a workers movement um and basically we've been tracking down people you know they're now in their 70s and 80s and uh trying to interview them about their experiences um, do you have a film crew with you when you're doing these interviews? We don't. No, that'd wish, be dope. I mean, yeah, it, it would be. It would be. Unfortunately, I just uh, I don't have the uh, you know academic life doesn't come with the the Hollywood budget. But you're doing it, you're doing research right now. Yeah. Is is it funded or how does yeah, that work? Yeah, yeah, I do get I do get some funding. Oh, that's um, nice. You know, that so like I get some grant money to to do this, and so I have you know oh, I, can, okay. I can I can hire like undergrad students uh to to be my research assistants to help with like transcribing interviews and that kind of thing um you know and and, and help do it do it in doing the interviews uh and then the, the 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 third uh project i'm working on is is uh probably more more uh relevant to your your interests it's called transforming the teamsters 
and that's basically documenting what's going on right now in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters where you know we have new leadership in the union with uh, led by Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman uh, who were elected in 2021 yeah and uh, and basically this is a union of 1.3 million members uh, depending on who you talk to um, that's one of the most well, important before. unions one one of the most important unions in the in 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 North America um, that has been sort of under this um, leadership uh, of of Jimmy Hoffa, uh, James P. Hoffa. Then let's talk about that. You know, I was gonna wait towards the yeah. end, uh, you know. But since we're on that up uh, that subject, let's talk a little bit about that. What do you feel? Sure. What's your what's your uh, as far as your research and mm -hmm. everything you've you've looked at? What's your your intake on on this? Yeah, so I, mean, I have my own. You know, yeah, I, no, I mean it's 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 definitely a new day in the Teamsters. I mean, I think like that that's sort of like the 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 bottom line is that you know what's going on now in the Teamsters is a a a, a big step up over what's been going on for the previous twenty plus years in terms of the union sort of being more dynamic in terms of actually trying to involve members and trying to take a more hard line with employers trying to actually um you know do these kind of what what for organizers would be fairly basic things like extending picket lines to other other places so you know so so f an example of that would be you know there have been um you know their their teamsters have a have a lot of contracts at cisco which is a, a nationwide um food service company um although they don't have like at UPS, there's no master Cisco agreement, right? They're all hived off yeah. into these individual Well, we got contracts. supplementals too. Yeah, yeah, but that's different. That's covered under master agreement that's negotiated along with it. Whereas, you know, at Cisco, you know, like a large chunks of the company are non-union and then you have these sort of individual contracts. Um, and so, you know, so there were these, uh, so there were uh, Cisco uh, negotiations happening in um in uh, at local 89 and in, in um in louisville and in uh and in uh, indiana and the uh international and so there were contracts they went on strike and they actually extended the picket lines to other parts of the country like what a concept you know <laughs> like um <laughs> you know trying to exert more economic pressure um and so that's great you know um and there's um and so there's a lot to point to in terms of greater activity, greater militancy, um, and and that is very promising. And I think, um, and that's particularly where we're looking at what's going on with the with the UPS contract. You know, where where they're. What do you think about O'Brien and, and Zuckerman? Have you been following them, their careers? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an it's an interesting trajectory, right? I think that. Well, because I. Recently, they just had their uh, national election, right? Yeah. Well, one of the people that was running for a uh, president was Ron Herrera. Yes. And well, for secretary uh, treasurer. Secretary. No, I think it was. He was so. So the president was Steve Verma, and the running mate was was Ron Herrera. I yeah. thought Ron was running for president. No, no, he was running for secretary treasurer. Was I? Am I wrong? Yeah. So he was running yeah. for the top yeah, spot. No, he was not running for the top spot. Secretary Treasurer in our local—that's the. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of um, a lot of Teamster locals. The principal officer is the Secretary Treasurer, but, but the principal but, officer but for the this principal was... officer for the Teamsters is the General President. I thought 
thought it was Bahirma. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah Verma, wow. so Verma was Verma. Running, running for the Teamster presidency against Sean O'Brien, and Ron Herrera was the running mate to so, Fred Zuckerman, who's the running so mate. So yeah. O'Brien's the top dog then? O'Brien is the top oh, officer. Yes. See? Yes. I learned something new every day. Yeah. Yes. I've been doing this show for four years. Yes. Okay, so. I understand. I was like, wonder why. I was like, well, maybe because Zuckerman, he's the he's the brains behind everything. Everyone says that he's a brainiac. You know, he's good mm -hmm. with numbers and all that. Yeah. Uh, but it it's it's as I've been getting involved with the union more. I've been a 25, 25 year teamster and podcasting. It's opened my eyes to things as what happened because the reason why I really got involved. With, with going out there and, and interviewing people and getting involved in the labor movement was because my brother passed away from COVID. He was a UPS driver. Sorry, sorry. And we went through a, a period a lot, not just me, not just my brother, but a lot of other uh, fellow Teamsters that were in the delivery or distribution or whatever you, whatever, if you're working during a pandemic and you were a Teamster, you went through the same thing. But my brother got sick and he got COVID at work. He went to work. He came home. That's all he did. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He lived, he was celibate. He was a Christian and he went to work and he knew that he was there to help people to give them their medicine, whatever they need. He went out there for those people. He sacrificed his life for the people that were in need and yeah. his customers appreciated him. And he got COVID and he, he didn't even make it to the hospital. He didn't wake up one morning. They found him in his bed Lived with both my parents. Lived with them. He was the only one. Lived everyone. Out. My me and my sister. We moved out. Obviously, we moved out. Have our families, and he was there. And my parents got sick, and they were in the hospital for over a month. And we had to wait to put my brother's funeral on hold because my parents almost passed away. Yeah. Okay. My dad had uh, came out of the hospital a day later. He couldn't breathe. His his lungs uh, collapsed. It was a whole ordeal where when we buried my brother, both my parents, who were healthy uh, at well, at the age of, like, 57, uh, were in wheelchairs. It, it was a very s sad moment for me and my family. It was it yeah. was devastating. Uh, I talk about it on my show. I talk about it. People understand. I, I've cried on the show, yeah. and, and it, it's upset me. Uh, it, just, it was just a blow. He was 35 years old. And... So when I see my uh, my parents are, are doing good, we're, we're healing, getting, you know, we, we, we learn to live with it. But UPS made a lot of money. Yeah. And I, and I told you before the show that a few days later, his coworker died. And a couple of days later, supervisor died. And so that's what made me, with this contract too, get involved with the labor movement, mm -hmm. get involved with the union because they made billions of dollars yeah. off of us. And, and I'm just one story. How many other UPSers have lost their lives? Yeah. How many? It's Everything's always swept under the, under the carpet. I could tell you things off the air of, of, of stories I've heard that are true with, with, with certain things. And uh, I don't want to bring that out there because I don't want to get in trouble. But I'm going to talk about my experience on this. Yeah. And so this contract means a lot to me. Yeah. And so w when Ron lost and they lost and they, they the, the argument was uh, oh, uh, they have uh, uh, Zuckerman and uh, O'Brien have a failed contract. So they're going to take away our Western pension 
and combined it. And you hear all these different things of what's going on. Uh, and so you do get you do get worried. I don't know too much about Brian, just of what I heard. And to see the, the contract negotiations, uh, they're saying that uh, it's just all a dog and pony show. It's already been, the contract's already done with. It's just a dog and pony show to to vote for a strike authorization and stuff like that. And also here on the other side that no UPS hates us. We there's a chance we can go on strike. Mm -hmm. uh, from your research and everything you know, what do you feel? Well, I mean, I've been following what's been going on with the negotiations fairly closely, and I've been talking to rank and file teamsters about uh, you know who are organizing on the shop floor um, around contract issues. And as well as the negotiations, I, I would really push back against the idea that this is all just a dog and pony show. I think that that's a real recipe for sort of um, for for resigning yourself for for cynicism. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and 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 not uh, and, and disempowerment. Right. I think that. <clears throat> there's been a lot of activity, so the, and, and, and some of it the international has been encouraging. You know, um, a lot of rank and file teams are organizing like regular parking lot meetings to talk about contract issues, uh, to talk about what's been going on nowadays, to mobilize for a strike vote, which, which is happening as we speak. Um, if you are mm -hmm. a teamster listening to this mm -hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> before yeah, yeah. before t before uh, before um, Ju June fifteenth, I believe is the deadline. Um, you know, get out and uh, and and vote to authorize a strike. Um, you know, so so there's and and I think members have the opportunity to shape these contract negotiations in a way that we have not seen since nineteen ninety seven. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty clear. That's not to say that there's not criticisms we made that there couldn't be more openness in the bargaining. I think that, you know, that, that, that there's, there has, you know, wh while there has been a lot shared through the app, so there's a UPS Teamsters app that you can download yeah. and, and they've been, they've Sounds been pushing Sounds like you work out. at UPS, bro. <laughs> they, they've been pushing. <laughs> well, no, this is for Teamsters. This no, isn't, I know. This isn't, this is, you know. So, well, so no, yeah, we have the Teamsters yeah, app. Yeah, the, the Teamsters UPS app, you know, and they, and they do provide, you know, regular, updates which is great you know and i think and a huge advance over the kind of brownout that you had um you know when you had uh james v hoffa and, and dennis taylor negotiating the agreement like in 2018 and in 2013 uh, so well, I, I heard they signed i heard this time around they sent everyone because we haven't really had any information yet mm -hmm. you know they're there we just had a meeting it was on it was on zoom where you can call in they they gave basic things of what's going on uh, mm -hmm. as far as the meat and potatoes uh, people are, are still saying it's a brownout they're saying that a lot of uh, rank and file members people that were in those meetings had, had to sign ndas yeah and so they're feeling a lot of people are still saying it feels like a brownout too yeah so i think that you're right that that there is um there, there are sort of things that could be done to be more transparent and that yeah. that, that, that that's that's for sure but compared to 2018 it's just it's, it's night and day now the, the the problem is that 2018 is like a very low bar to compare yourself to right mm. uh and so i think that yeah i mean the ndas are a problem uh and and but you know i think that um you know so there is has been um you know so so teamsters for democratic union has this ups teamsters united campaign that's been organizing so there's been f almost weekly um, webinars that they've been doing where you've gotten like a thousand fifteen hundred teamsters on these calls 
and they've covered all these all these uh, all these elements like going through the UPS financials, like talking about like that this isn't really something for California Teamsters, but if you're in the central states, um, you know UPS has the, the the UPS pension plan that covers Teamsters in the central and southern regions. Um, how to organize to improve the pension there, so it's more like what's in the West, because mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, as you are well aware, the Western Teamsters has 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 a good pension plan. Um, there is uh, there, there there have been um, there have been webinars on you know how to how, how to organize your own parking lot meeting, right? Is your local official? Yeah, they had a meeting today at yeah. Local 396. Yeah, so that. Local 396 is, is 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 one of the good ones, right? Where they they've actually been you know, going out to the to to, to the centers. You know, setting up tables, getting information out, uh, but not all locals are like that, and so there are other locals where you know, so 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 TDU has you know, uh, basically a, a a a parking lot meeting in a box essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Where like you get in touch, you go to upsteamstersunited.com, you like you know. Set, set, sign up and they will like send you like all the materials that you need right and 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 so and 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 they're so you've got these rank and file teams just doing that how stuff, long were you right? with tdu for six years okay yeah well so. one thing that a lot of my my co-workers would say a lot of people that are, mm -hmm. are bas and that that are within the, the local is that tdu is because teamsters we we talk about teamsters we're a union we're all one yeah and when you you say that uh you you, you decide hey we're gonna we're starting to something else it's gonna be called tdu mm -hmm. we're all supposed to be together as one mm -hmm. and you guys tdu not you but like tdu has branched out to to create another type of union or mm -hmm. to separate themselves from the official teamsters people see that as uh that w you're separating the unity the union mm -hmm. that what's what's what we're really about yeah. what can you say about that yeah i mean i think that it's it it it's there's a difference between being unified and stifling dissent right i think that um you know having i think you know in a democratic country one of the one of the hallmarks of democracy is that you have competing parties that have competing visions of what the union should be about or of what the country should be about. Right. So like here mm -hmm. you have the Democrats, Republicans, you have other people who want a third party, like we were talking about in the mm -hmm. earlier part of the podcast, a lot mm -hmm. of other countries, there's multiple parties, you know, and you can be unified in being, you know, we are all Americans. We are all um, Canadians. We're all French, what have you, and have, political differences mm -hmm. right and i think that that is that is uh you know tdu's role is for a democratic union right and what a democratic union is is where members feel that they have a way of being involved of being engaged and actually shaping the future of their union right and the fact of the matter is is that for much of the teamsters history that just wasn't the case right i mean i think that it was it was it was really bad prior to 1989 when you got to the point where the union was essentially a wholly on subsidiary of the mob, right? We're mm -hmm. not there anymore. Mm -hmm. In large part, thanks to TDU, by the way, because TDU was a key in uh, in in convincing the federal government not to just trust the well, union Hoffa's, entirely. Well, Hoffa's dad was involved, right? 
Well, he was well, he was long gone by that point. But in okay. terms of, he, he, like, he, he disappeared in 75. But yeah, I mean, Hoffa played a role. I mean, Hoffa is an interesting character. I've written, written about him, uh, you know, but he, 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 he was, on the one hand, the sort of, you know, very militant trade unionist was the architect of, of you know, the National Master Freight Agreement and really built the Teamster, you know, was, was really responsible for making the Teamsters into a strong, Did powerful union. Did he ever find union. his body? No. Not, not to my knowledge, um, but they, but, but he also was responsible for, um, you know, allowing a lot of corruption and mob domination into yeah. the union, right? And so he's this contradictory character. How, 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 on point is that movie that came out with uh, Al Pacino and Robert Downey Jr. Or not Robert Downey, uh, Robert mean, De Niro. You mean The Irishman? Yeah. Um, I may have ru- I've written about this. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes. There's an article I can uh-huh. like you can yeah, post, send it po- to me. post it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, I will. No, I mean like it 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 doesn't really do more Hollywood. D- d- I mean it's it's Hollywood, right? And but I mean I think like um, obviously you know it's based on a on a book called I Heard You Paint Houses that you know has some some factual errors that a lot of Hoffa scholars have 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 criticized. Mm. But for me as 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 a labor scholar, I mean the the main problem I had with the movie, I mean, I, I think it's a, as, as a movie, it's a good, it's a great movie, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a Scorsese movie, so great. Um, but in terms of like looking at it in terms of an accurate depiction of union politics, I mean, it really does not do Hoffa justice Yeah. in the sense that it really portrays him as sort of a charismatic buffoon, essentially. You can make a militant speech, but he's not the brightest guy, whatever, you know, and it really doesn't do justice to like, the, the the real dynamism and the real like strategic thinking he brought in, in into the union, you know, because it's not really the focus of the movie, you know. But I think like that's really for me what's interesting about Hoffa is that he really was a master strategist and he really was, uh, you know, a really had a broad vision for the union in a way that his followers did not. And I think that was that was that was partially his downfall was that you know he didn't really have. Um, he didn't really brook dissent very well. He didn't really take, he wanted yes men around him. And so when he gets, you know, disappeared by the mob, um, it's the yes men that are left in charge. Mm-hmm. And they don't have that broad vision and they don't have that, f- that, 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 that militancy that Hoffa did. And that basically lets the, the, the union, basically the mob basically take over. And so I think, you know, getting back to the question though about TDU's role in the union, you know, I mean, I think TDU is about sort of creating a more dynamic, vibrant union, right? Not, not creating something separate. It's, it's made up of Teamster members um, who have a vision for like a union that works more for the members, right? And, 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 you know, other parts of the union can articulate their own vision for like, we actually think the union should be run this way, right? Um, and and um, so I think that that TDU provides a vehicle for uh, for for Teamster members who want to be more involved, who want the union to be more responsive to members, hold right? them accountable. Yeah, to hold to n- not just to hold them accountable, but to just create you know because it's not it's not just about um, it's not just about um, you know throwing pot shots at officials, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's sometimes what people think is like, you know, TDU is basically just like the peanut gallery sort of like, you know, you know, throwing, you know, you know, throwing stones at the, at the officials just to sort of piss them off or what have you. And it's really not, it's really about, um, 
you know, giving members tools to build a stronger union. I mean, just go back to what I was saying earlier about like, like what, what TD has been doing, you know, with these webinars, right? Like giving members information. Here's the latest about the contract. You know, here's some tools you can use to like do something in your local, mm -hmm. um, you know, set up a parking lot meeting, um, you know, circuit, you know, here's, here's, you know, and, and in some cases it's, it's doing the stuff that I, that, that, uh, uh, the union leadership probably should be doing, you know, like it probably should be, you know, disseminating more information to their members. They probably should be organizing more meetings where they, where they are actually like getting people involved and organized. But in their absence, you know, you have an organization like TD that's doing something, right? And so I think that 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 um, that that that's really how I I view it is that it's really aimed at getting people more involved in their union, in building up their union, not something separate. Yeah. How much influence did TD you have on the election of O'Brien and Zuckerman? I mean, they played a critical role. I don't think that you would have... Uh, I mean, I think you can't say that they, like, carried the ball. I mean, that was, you know, O'Brien had a coalition, right? And TDU was a part of that coalition. Um, and I think if you think about it, particularly in terms of the ground game, right, in terms of actually like getting, reaching out to rank and file teamsters, um, that's sort of TDU's bread and butter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and so I think that they they played a critical role. Um, I think you know, I, I wouldn't, I would I wouldn't go so far as to say that you know, they wouldn't have won without TDU support because I think there's so much going on at that point. In terms of um, you know the Hoffa coalition just being completely um, frayed and exhausted, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like that that whole that 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 the Hoffa train had basically run out of steam by that point, and mm -hmm. um, you know and and Verma was not a strong candidate, um, you know, and and so I I don't I don't think that it was like the essential piece, but I think that um, anybody that disc is trying to discount TDU's role is also, um, you know, missing the boat. Yes. Do you, do you, I mean, everyone talks about conspiracies nowadays. Everything's conspiracy mm -hmm. all the way up to the president with, uh, Joe Biden and the, the files of his, his son Biden, uh, with, with explicit photos and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, what happened with with Ron? We'll touch base on this real quick. I haven't talked about this on the show because I, I know Ron, uh, and so we they got the recordings and everything uh, of the people from what was it the well city council the LA city council yeah LA city council yeah. they you, obviously you know the the scoop on that yeah how deep did that go? Was it just it just happened all of a sudden because he decided to 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 run for the national IBT or do you think it was, it, it had to do more of a, a hit piece from, from him trying, you know, trying to go up to the top. It just seemed like it all just happened at once. Well, I mean, I think you need to remember that the scandal that caused Herrera to resign from the chair of the LA County Federation of Labor uh, was after the election. Yeah. Right? So that was that, that none of that, had anything to do so as uh, at the time of the election in 2021 ron herrera was still the principal officer of 396 and and was um and 
you know, was chair of the LA County Fed, um, even though those conversations had happened, I believe, a year prior to that. Mm. So I don't think it has anything to do with that. And I don't think that it, I don't think that his role in the Teamsters really had much to do, frankly, with, with the whole city council's scandal. Mm. I think that was much more his hat as LA County Fed chair, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, because, I mean, that whole conversation was about basically trying to carve out a city council district for him to run in that mm. would allow him to, you know, get on LA City Council, right? That was the, that was the substance of the conversation that obviously went off in a bunch of other different um, problematic directions. But that was at the core of what that conversation was about, you know, as he was trying to sort of like transition from his role as LA County Fed Chair to something on LA City Council. Um, so I don't think his role in the Teamsters specifically was a big part of that whole situation. Okay, yeah, some people were saying it was a hit, it was a hit piece, you know, uh, uh, during the campaign, things yeah. were said. Uh, the, the Teamsters, uh, as far as like O'Brien, uh, there's still there's still ties with the the mob and stuff like that. I mean, mm. you, you hear c certain stories. Yeah. And, and certain I mean, I think you know the 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 big thing for me. I mean, you know, I mean the the the, the what what Herrera was doing with the city councilors is sort of the cherry on top. Right? I mean, like the problem with Herrera was, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying it's not that he was like saying all this racist stuff behind closed doors. Um, you know, and, 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 and trying to like fix deals with himself. It, it really has to, I mean, the, the, the bigger issue for me really just has to do with like his vision of like what the union's supposed to be doing and his mm -hmm. role as a labor leader in it. Right. Well, some people Whereas, got upset. Some people say that he, he had, he doesn't deserve all those pensions from all the, the leaderships positions he yeah. held. Well, I mean like the issue of like multiple pensions for officers and stuff is, is, is something that, that uh, has been an ongoing problem in the Teamsters where, you know, officers are entitled to these multiple very generous pensions that members don't have access to. Um, you know, Herrera's uh, a dime a dozen <laughs> when mm -hmm. it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not the issue. The Like, what I was, was going to say is that the, the real issue just has to do with Ron Herrera's vision of what, the union's role is in society, in the economy, and his role as a labor leader in that union, mm -hmm. right? In that, you know, if, if you watched his um, debate, right, with, with, with Fred Zuckerman during the election campaign, you know, his, his, um, his claim, you know, his, you know, what, what he was trying to sort of when he was making his case for why he should be the general secretary treasurer of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, it was, you know, I know all these important, powerful people. I know people, I've, I've made deals in Sacramento. I make deals with employers. You're like, I'm the guy who's like got the connections basically, yeah. right? Um, and so that's a real, essentially a top-down vision of the union, right? Where the union is sort of this like organization and he's the head of it and he's like the big shot who can walk into a room with the people he knows, he's got the connections and make the deals, right? Uh, and the O'Brien Zuckerman team, you know, to a great, and you know, it's important to understand that, that 
that that's a coalition, right? And so, di- the, but but what O'Brien was advancing was an idea that you know a union has to fight for its members, right? Mm-hmm. The union is not going to just get some deal because Sean O'Brien or Fred Zuckerman or whoever goes into a room and like pounds on the table, and then the employer is like goes like, oh, you're pounding on the table. I'm gonna like you know give you what you want. Um, no, that's not <laughs> that's not how negotiations work. That's not how unions work. You know, unions need to fight uh, to organize. And 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 whatever criticisms you have of O'Brien, um, that the, the you know militancy is not one. Lack of militancy is not one of them. Uh, he certainly has the ability to sort of you know he has a, a militant vision for 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 what the union should be about. Um, and you know, not everybody on his slate necessarily shares that vision to 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 an extent, but certainly a large chunk of it does, and certainly far more of it does than 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 the Verma Herrera slate. And so, those are two really different visions of what a union's supposed to be doing, mm. um, particularly in 2023, when you know, going back way back to the the beginning of our conversation, where we're talking about uh, corporate greed, and we're talking about sort of employer pushback, we're talking about union decline. And you're talking about like how do we actually address that? How do we turn that around? Mm. You're definitely not going to negotiate your way out of that, mm. right? You'd have to fight your way out of that. Before we before we leave, I want to touch base on the Supreme Court ruling on Glacier Northwest yeah. Incorporated versus the Teamsters Local Union 174 case. Yeah. From what I've been told, and you could correct me, is that the Supreme Court it went to the Supreme Court, and that. Three, three of the, the judges were appointed by Donald Trump, which everyone talks about that Donald Trump is a non-union. He, he's, he, he hires people for, for, uh, to be union busters. Uh, as far as him being hotel, multiple hotel owners, uh, he's well known to uh, uh, de-appreciate disappreciate his workers mm-hmm. in the hotel industry yeah. to not unionize. Can you uh, touch base on that? Yeah. So I think the, the, the glacier decision is, uh, I think the, the, the important thing to remember <laughs> from that is that it was a fairly narrow decision could have been a lot worse. And the justices, not even the Trump justices, but like Samuel Alito, um, who I believe was a Bush appointee, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, was very explicit in their concurring opinion that they wanted it to go further. But the actual decision was fairly narrow. And the key takeaway that workers need to have is that is that the Supreme Court did not take away the right to strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the decision basically was, well, the, the broader decision would have been infringing on the ability of so it's basically would would have allowed state law to um, trump federal law. <laughs> that, that's sort of the basically the the, the way that that um, the way that the National Labor Relations Act, which is the act governing labor relations in the in the United States, also known as the Wagner Act, we've been talking about periodically during this conversation, um, is supposed to govern disputes between or unions and employers. Mm-hmm. And this case, basically, where there was members of Teamsters Local 174 who were going on strike and, um, you know, kept their and they were cement drivers and they 
They get the machines rolling. They kept their machines rolling. Gave the supervisors the keys. Yeah, gave the supervisors the keys. Um, So they did. They did take measures to try to protect the company's equipment because if they hadn't, if they just turned off their trucks, then the then it would have you know hardened in the drum and and it would have you know sabotaged the entire um, truck. They didn't do that. But for, but 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 yeah, it would have been corporate sabotage. But the 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 uh, employers, for whatever reason, weren't able to use the cement, and so they basically sued the union for damages for uh, you know for 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 taking um, for for damaging for for not uh, you know for for wasting the concrete. Yeah, basically what w- they w- basically the what they said was you you the machines were rolling and everything, but we had nowhere to put the cement. Yeah, yeah, but. If you look at UPS, when they went on strike in 97, what happened? All the supervisors had to suit up and go do those deliveries. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they could have done things. The point yeah. being that they sued for the value, the lost value of the concrete. And normally, um, damages that are caused by workers exercising their right to strike, which is guaranteed under the National Labor Relations Act, um, need to be resolved through the National Labor Relations Act. Right? That's mm. just how the law generally works because the federal law, uh, you know, preempts, that's the term, the, the state laws, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if someone, like, if someone, like, causes property damage to your home or whatever, like, you can sue them in court, you know, for, a, you know, small claims or, mm-hmm. or if it's larger for, you know, for, for damages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, through what's called tort law. Um, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but <laughs> I want to make that clear. <laughs> but uh, but, the, but the, 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 through what's called tort law, which is state law. And um, where, but if, if, if there's damages that happen to your business as a result of your workers going on strike, you need to go through the National Labor Relations Act mm-hmm. and file what's called an unfair labor practice. Um, with them if you have a problem you can't go to state court um, and what this did is that the, the, this decision basically carved out a narrow exception I mean you know which it already existed it didn't car- it didn't create something new but it basically said that this instance of what these drivers did in Seattle of these cement drivers fell under this narrow exception to that general rule where there was, you know, I, I forget the technical legal term. It's like mm-hmm. necessary precautions, whatever. Um, where, so basically, they, they basically, the court basically argued that it didn't seem that, they, that these workers took enough precautions. Um, you know, and, and what, what, the, what the more conservative judges wanted to do was to basically create a scenario where, the, uh, where, 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 where employers could use state tort law to undermine federal labor mm. law right that's what their what their what their aim was now that so so that's the technicalities i think what's important for listeners of this podcast to understand about this is that this is an attack on the right to strike but as general president o'brien of the teamsters rightly noted in his response to the supreme court's ruling is that nobody can take away workers' right to strike. Mm-hmm. Workers' workers' right to strike is theirs to exercise mm-hmm. and something that workers have all, always fought for, regardless of what some Supreme Court, Supreme Court justice has said. Mm-hmm. Now, the, and it's important 
to understand that it's important to emphasize the l narrow limit of the ruling because to the extent because the, the the danger in sort of talking about talking up the ruling as something broader than it actually is is that laws and legal rulings often have this symbolic effect beyond the actual text of what they do. So it's more important often what people think the law says or does mm -hmm. than what it actually says or does. And so when people go around saying that the Glacier decision basically is taking away workers' right to strike, while it's true that it is an attempt to erode that right, mm -hmm. A, it did not take away that right, and B, to the extent that you sort of like give that up, it can sort of create more hesitancy in workers and in in and amongst unions mm -hmm. to that they become more cautious um, and less likely to engage in striking, which can often be the intent of these kinds of decisions. Most people that I know. Right. I, I, I've been doing this podcast. I'm on my fourth year. I was raised a, a Christian. I was raised mm -hmm. conservative growing up in the 80s, 90s. The, the Republican Party was always conservative. Uh, I, I, I guess you could say maybe uh, pro-union. My dad was a worked for McDonnell Douglas. He, he was a, then it, it, they turned into Boeing. He was a union member and retired at a young age at uh, 52. Mm -hmm. And now. It seems like it, it it's changed. Has it changed? I mean, can you give us a brief history of has what, what changed? What, the parties of supporting union has it always been Democratic? Has it has it ever switched from Republicans? Well, I mean, I think prior to the 1930s, mm -hmm. going back to our earlier yeah, we'll conversation, back, yeah. um, you know, neither party was particularly pro-union. Um, I mean, I think that um, you know. Traditionally, the Republican Party was uh, more of the civil rights party, ironically, mm -hmm. right? Because Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, was uh, fought the Civil War and to 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 uh, you know, and and the slaves sort of uh, enslaved people sort of, um, you know, uh, attributed you know to to a greater or lesser extent, you know, saw that the Republicans at least cared about their rights a lot more than the. Uh, Democrats who were on the side of the Confederacy, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, but but the you know the Democrats were not the party of the workers at all, right? I mean, I think like that that there wasn't the same kind of what what social scientists call a class cleavage, right? So so the parties weren't divided by like this is the party for workers and this is the party for bosses, mm -hmm. right? That prior to the 1930s. Um, you know, workers and bosses were in both parties, right? Because the dividing lines in politics were not so much around around economic class divides. They're more along religious lines. They're more along urban-rural yeah. divides, all those kinds of things, right? Um, and so, you know, if you were... If you were a worker, if you were like an Irish worker, you know, you voted Republican or if you were an Italian worker, you voted Democrat or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that Roosevelt sort of had the effect of sort of gathering, you know, creating the idea, accurate or not, that the Democratic Party was the party of workers. Mm -hmm. Right. And 
and by extension, you know, the, the Republicans were the party of big business. Now, the reality is obviously more complicated than that, and particularly when we get to today, right, where yeah. I think that, um, and the reality is that both parties are parties of big business, but just different parts of it, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at, you know, um, finance, tech, um, entertainment, you know, those sectors of the economy tend to be democratic Mm -hmm. versus, you know, extractive industries, petroleum, uh, chemicals, um, you know, if you, um, manufacturing, um, those tend to skew more Republican, right? So you have the, and and that's in terms of their funding base and, and, and often their, 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 their voting base. Um, but, um, but the sort of voter base of the Democratic Party still tends to be more working class, more, you know, um, uh, people of color, um, you know, versus the voting base of the Republican Party, which tends to vote more white, uh, which tends to skew more white, more, uh, more evangelical, um, older, mm. um, you know, more male. Um, you know, and you you can obviously slice and dice the data in all sorts of different ways, but the major point is that neither party is really a party of the working class in any meaningful so we start sense. Labor movement class. <laughs> well, there is still more. I would say more than ever the need for a labor party. What would it take to create something like that? Well. <laughs> That's the challenge, right? And that's the challenge that workers have faced for uh, over 150 years in this country. Um, and it's sort of there's, you know, the longer you go, the harder it gets, right? Yeah. There, there, there's a there, 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 there's um, a, a term that, again, we you know to use a, a nerdy social science term, it's called path dependency, right? So mm. if you think about sort of like history is like you hit a fork in the road and then like, you know, if you're like, you know, at the beginning of the fork, like you can still see the fork, you know, a few feet away from you. But like mm-hmm. if the fork keeps on going, you know, like it gets further and further away. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to walk further and further to get to the other part of the fork. Right. So uh, and, and so so that's you can think about that similarly now. Um, there's a lot of debates that continue within the U.S. left about how do we get there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that... Yeah, that's where I was going to go, Yeah, too. you know, that, and, and I think that, you know, you, you've had this, and this discussion has actually um, reignited in some bigger ways in recent years, in large part because of Bernie Sanders, who ran for yeah, president in yeah. 2016 and then in 2020, Right. As a democratic socialist, sort of identifying explicitly as a democratic socialist, you now have, um, you know, you know, other people who identify as democratic socialists who have been elected to Congress, the so-called squad. You know, so people like AOC, like Rashida Tlaib, um, Cori Bush um, and others. Um, And and so so this is sort of created uh, more debate. You know, it's not it's not it's not like a huge part of political debate in the U.S., but certainly more it's more on the agenda than it's been, you know, certainly in my lifetime. I'll put it that way. Yes. Uh, And so there are people who argue now for uh, something called a, a dirty break. 
right? Where, where basically, as opposed to a clean break. So a clean break would be, um, would be basically like, oh, we just reject the two corporate dominated parties and we form our own um, separate like left wing or labor party of some sort, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, because of all these, you know, like path dependent processes again to use that nerdy mm -hmm. social science term but basically the water under the bridge maybe you think about it that way right mm -hmm. um you think of all the costs involved um the oh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. um you think of all the costs involved for the social forces that would actually need to have buy-in into that kind of political project for it to work right mm -hmm where it's not just a bunch of like crazy leftists sort of like screaming about workers rights, but actual like where you have like a significant chunk of labor unions actually like bankrolling this and actually like putting, you know, staff resources into it. And you have other sort of broader social groups who sort of like see that like, this is really our political voice. Right. Um, if you're, if that's your opening, if that's your opening gambit that, you know, you need to like reject the two major parties and, and, and just, and get behind this other, other organization. The problem there is that, you know, particularly if you think about like what labor unions are do, doing on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Like they need to, you know, that they have ongoing relationships with elected officials in, in all sorts of communities um, and, and states and federal level across the country. Um, and they need to get things from those elected officials and, um, and they need to negotiate deals and, and, and stuff like that. And that's, and that, and it's not, that's not in some conspiratorial way. That's just sort of like, you know, the day-to-day -day working of sort of political life and for them to basically just reject all of that mm -hmm. and just focus on this other party would just be too high a barrier for a lot of people to, you know, th there'd be, they would impose really high costs, mm. right? Um, there, there needs to be sort of an on-ramp, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then, so the question is like, how do you build an on-ramp to that? And uh, to, to actually like convincing people that like, okay, we can actually build some different political vision for how parties work in the United States. Yeah, that was my next yeah. question I was gonna ask you yeah. uh, before we get out of here is, the unionization, the, the stronghold of union has declined uh, over the years. Mm -hmm. and, and I've seen it. Uh, we're, we're, we're organizing Amazon. We're trying to organize medieval times. People are waking up. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're with a pushback. I've always said, like a UPS, like, like no one comes out to the rallies. No one comes to the union hall meetings. Uh, uh, UPS, you know, at, at my local. And there's, there's always there's always going to be uh, political differences, uh, bad blood. And I voted for this guy. Mm -hmm. I don't like your vision. There's always going to be a, a division, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's a division of my local, and, and it yeah. sucks because every decision is just political now. I'm just going to vote yes because I voted for him. So whatever he says, I'm going to vote yes. And, and and we can't do that. Like we have to move on and. Uh, and and just be be grown adult and understand mm -hmm. like that's the way democracy works in this world that's the way uh 
the United States has grown, has developed into. Mm -hmm. And so I, f I feel like we, we, we got to bring it back because you got Amazon. I know people that work for Amazon. I've had Amazon workers on here that are trying to organize. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to bring the, 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 the stronghold of unionization, unionization, uh, unionize, Unionization is that unionization. A word? Unionization. I apologize, guy. <laughs> Jeez, uh, we gotta bring them together. We we gotta grow strong. And I'm here. I'm here. My podcast. I you listen to my podcast. Start from episode one. Go all the way down. You'll you'll see who who I am and what I've become. And one thing that I that I that I'm really involved in right now is the labor labor movement. Yeah. Because of what I've been through. Yeah. Uh, and so people are. are listening now uh, go back to my old episodes and, and hear what i have to say but my question to you now the final mm -hmm. question okay yeah. okay what do we need to do to strengthenize the union in this united states also canada as well yeah i mean i think the big thing is learn how to fight again i think that's the the bottom line and um i think that you know in both the us and canada strike rates have just b flatlined yeah for all intents and purposes, uh, even now um, with the sort of recent mini upsurges, like with the Red State Revolt in 2018 with the teachers and, um, you know, the post-pandemic uh, kind of situation, we're not even at um, strike levels that we s that were routine in, like, the late Reagan era. Do you think, it, you think it's because, like, I, I feel <laughs> like a lot of the, the drivers that I know, like, they're so comfortable, they make good money, they think... They're comfortable with just renting an apartment and I, I, I take days off during the week and hang out the house, play video games mm -hmm. or smoke weed, whatever you guys want to do. You know, I get it. But part of being in the union or, and being organized is to go to your meetings. It's once yeah. a month. Yeah. It's not like you got to go every day. Yeah. I used to go to church three times a week. Yeah. But I think that the, the issue is like for what, right? Go, go to the union meeting for what, right? If, if workers are just going to show up at a, at a union meeting and they're just going to like read the minutes and like talk about like, you know, give someone a, a gold watch for like their service to the union or whatever, like that's not compelling, right? You've been in but a this, meeting, huh? but this, yeah, <laughs> but this is, but this is what I'm getting about. You know, it's like if uni unions need to, learn how to fight again you know and that that you know we've had 40 years basically where labor's been on the defensive and um you know and 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 i i don't want to get the sense i mean you know unionization rates are much higher in canada but it's not like labor's in a great space there either you know they're in a great situation they there's some there's some turning around that needs to happen in canada too uh and and there, there's some of it which is, you know, problems with the political scenario and the laws and stuff like that. But at a basic level, there's there's the idea that, like, you know, that unions need to learn how to fight again. And I think that, you know, that, that you know, whatever criticisms you might have of O'Brien and the Teamsters, you know, the fact that he's getting up there, you know, and talking, you know, with like and like people like Sarah Nelson and the flight attendants union um, are talking about, you know, we need to regain our power to strike again. You know, we need to fight. Uh, we're not going to get we're not going to get where we need to go by, you know, just cutting deals by voting for the right politicians. Um, we need to, you know, labor needs to fight. And that takes organizing. Um, fortunately, there's stuff happening. You know, the UPS contract is, is the is, old administration is, like Hoffa did that. They did not fight. 
No. They, okay. They, they, they I just want to. Yeah. No, no, no. I know no, it's a touchy no, subject because no, no, people are no, going to listen to this and no, go, oh. No, no, The Hoffa administration was not about fighting. The Hoffa administration was about sort of like negotiating deals, right? And and, and so and that's why they voted O'Brien because they thought that. Uh, there's a different vision, right? Yeah. So if your union meeting is, you know, we've got strikes going on at this company, this company, you can join the picket line here. You know, you have your contract, your company's coming up. You know, here's how you can get involved. Uh, we're going to have negotiating sessions where, you know, you can come and like sh see what, what, what kind of BS the management's trying to pull over on us. And you can, you know, organize your coworkers to fight back. You know, that's a very different kind of union meeting. Right. And that's one where, where 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 it makes a lot more sense for you to sh to make the time to show up that once a month. Right. And so I think that uh, w th that's part of what we're talking about, about learning how to fight is, you know, is is getting members, you know, seeing members as 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 part of the union and not just sort of complaining like, oh, members don't show up, but giving them a reason to show up. Right. <laughs> like, here's these things you can do. And like if if they can't come to the union, you know. Bring it to the, you know, like, like what, what local 396 has been doing, you know, like, you know, let's set up a table, you know, in, in the preload shift. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, let's talk to these part timers about mm -hmm. what their issues are and let's actually get them involved. And like, you know, so, yeah, we need we need to hire part time pay. So let's, you know, get a petition going. You know, it's like all these little things are all part of like building up those muscles. Well, the union is supposed to be doing that. Yeah, exactly. No, this yeah. is like the basic ABCs of, of what a union is supposed to be about, mm -hmm. right? It's nothing. There's not rocket science. This isn't some huge like if you're getting paid to, If you're getting paid to write a book and you're getting paid to do research, you should be doing it. You yeah. should be out at the bar. You shouldn't be out hanging out. Same thing as a, you, you work for the union hall. You shouldn't be at the bar. You shouldn't be hanging out, sleeping, doing whatever. You should be out there innovating. Say, what can I do to yeah. make my, my my union stronger? What can I do yeah. to help my employees doing yeah. something? And this isn't this isn't like I said. This isn't some huge innovation. These are sort of like basic, basic building blocks yeah. that have been the, the union organized them using for a hundred years. You know, literally. Um, and I think that, you know, fortunately now, you know, there, there has been more energy, you know, like, so we've got the writer strike here in California and yeah. across the country. Shout out to the we've writers. Got, yeah. Shout out to the writers. You know, the, 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 the screen actors guild just voted 97% to strike. Uh, you know, we've got the UPS contract. Did you listen to 90.7? Did I send it to you? No. I was on 90.7 no. okay. FM. It was workers voice. It was, I think yeah. it was like June 2nd. Oh, cool. But they were down there interviewing the, the workers guild. They said that the writers guild, the writers guild, my bad. Yeah, yeah. And they, they were talking about, uh, how uh, it, it's they got AI is going to be writing all their stuff. Yeah. Now and, yeah. And talking so about there's the technological change is a big issue. And then you, you got the docs that are, that are, that are, that are doing slowdowns. Now you've got, um, you know, the Starbucks workers organizing, you've got Amazon workers organizing, you've got the Teamsters, you've got the big three auto contracts coming up September 15th. Um, you know, you've got organizations like the emergency workplace organizing committee that are, that are, that are, uh, you know, seizing some of this energy from young workers who want to organize in their workplaces. Um, th there's a lot of different things that sort of like are sort of showing that there's some signs of life and that mm -hmm. there's signs of actual willingness to fight back more. And so that, that, that's, that's sort of on the right track. You know, it's not on the scale that we need to be seeing to actually, you know, turn the ship around. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely in the right direction. 
man, we, uh, man, I could talk to you all night, dude. I think you're asking you questions all night. <laughs> I need night. to get my kids to yeah, bed. Yeah, no, no, I know. I know. <laughs> They're probably uh, going to be in bed by now. Okay, before so. we get out of here, talk, uh, tell the people uh, where they can get a hold of your book. Sure. Uh, if you got any, uh, any uh, speeches or presentations you're going to be doing? Uh, where yeah. can people get a hold of you? You know, yeah. do your plug. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram, just at Idlin, E-I-D-L-I-N. Um, you know, you can buy my book, uh, the Cambridge University Press website. If you use the discount code Idlin2018, it'll give you a 20% discount, but you can find it a lot of other places. Um, you know, uh, I write a lot uh, for Jacobin, um, but... Uh, you know, if uh, and 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 other uh, other other media outlets, um, so you can you can check out my writing there if you want to learn about you know my take on on Jimmy Hoffa and the Irishman. If you want to, <laughs> if you want my take on you know higher education organizing. If you want, I know we're on, trying on to touch the U, U, yeah, U, we, UAW. The, 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 you know, so basically, uh, you know, stuff related to workers' rights and 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 workers fighting back. Um, and sort of labor, workers, and politics, those kinds of questions are sort of what, I, what I'm usually writing about. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd love to hear from people. And then, my, and then I, oh, and I also have my own website, which is just barryidland.org. Give them a follow, guys. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you and uh, if you want to continue the conversation. Hey, once again, Barry, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Uh, two hours just flew by, yeah. dude. I, I was just, <laughs> I, I, it, it took me a while as, as a as a podcaster to start tuning in and, and, and asking your questions and stuff like that. We could have gone for four hours, man. I, yeah. I can hear you talk all day, man. You're really educated. I really Thank appreciate you. what you're doing, man. It, it means a lot to me you're on the show. This is going to go down as one of my favorite podcasts okay. so far, well. man. Once again, I want to thank all my listeners from around the world that tune in every week to the Raider and State podcast. I love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week. You can hit me up at the Raider and Saint at Outlook.com if you want to be on the show. Once again, I love you guys. I'll see you next week. All right? I'm out. Peace.